Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Okay, my name is Ndogo Zobitelezi. I'm studying a BCom in Economics and Management this is my final year. Mm-hmm. And are you aware of the protests that have been happening like throughout South Africa on Definitely. student campus? I mean, here at WITS, we're protesting for the no-fee increase for free education. I mean, we even went to union buildings last year. I was a part of them as well. Yeah, it was, it was fulfilling, fighting for a worthy cause, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so I've, I've been a part of them myself, so yes. Do you know about the student protests that have been happening recently in India? Actually, I haven't. I, I'm not aware. I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've only been aware of, or oh, I've been focused on South African issues, South African student issues. I haven't uh, been looking at what else has been going on with students in other countries. You know, yeah, I guess it's just that lack of awareness. Yeah. Wow. As we know, the university system in South Africa is experiencing many challenges and complexities at the moment. This week, we looked at an international comparison to get a sense of where we stand globally. South Africa is the world's youngest democracy, but India is its most populous. Our two countries share a history of British colonialism and a present reality of extreme inequality. We also both have legacies of social conflict which are rooted in social categories like race or caste. So what can we learn from each other? Our guest today is Professor Dilip Menon, Director of the Centre for Indian Studies in Africa, based at WITS. Prof. Menon was educated at the University of Delhi and then Oxford and Cambridge. For the past decade, his research has engaged with issues of caste, socialism and equality in modern India. Currently, he's working on issues of cultural and intellectual history and is engaged in a project on the writing of history in India between 1850 and 1960. The work inaugurated at the Centre for Indian Studies in Africa is interdisciplinary and transnational in approach and looks afresh at issues of colonialism, modernity, and migration in the Global South. Okay, so a very warm welcome to today's guest, Professor Dilip Menon, who is going to speak to us today about the landscape of the higher education sector in India and hopefully shed some light on what lessons can be learned in South Africa and beyond. So welcome, Dilip. Thanks for being here. Could you perhaps start by giving us your perspective on what's been happening at Indian universities in the past year? Many of us in South Africa have seen in the news that there have been various disputes and various kinds of protests from both faculty and from students, but not everyone fully understands what those issues are about. So perhaps we could kick off there. Thank you, Mehita, for having me speak on this. This is less a matter of expertise and more a matter of passion, because as an academic uh, who taught in India for a considerable length of time, these are the issues that I was dealing with. But Briefly put, I think there are two major issues when one looks at the landscape of higher education in India, and those are the overarching arguments. One, the rise of Hindu 
fundamentalism and the fact that there is a Hindu nationalist government in power right now. And second, the fact that like with all over the world, I mean, this is also true all over the world that most countries are moving to the right, but like with all over the world, we are also dealing with the phenomenon of the neoliberal university. So keeping those two in mind, I'd like to begin with the first. One of the things that has happened with the coming of the Hindu nationalist government to power is that it sees itself in a landscape that has been determined to a large extent over the last 40 or 50 years by a left liberal establishment, which has uh, certainly been culpable of instituting systems of patronage which have put groups from the left liberal caucus in power. So when the Hindu nationalists come in, one of the things that they are very clear about is that they want to now introduce their own systems of patronage. And and as you know, these are some of the features of any democracy, that democracy is as much about the circulation of elites as about opening up government to masses and their voices and so on. So the Hindu nationalist government has made it a point now to target every institution that was set up in the post-independence period, ranging from the centers for art, like the academies of art, literature, and so on, the film and television training institute, the universities themselves, the social science research council, the council for philosophical research, you name it, all the institutions of social sciences, humanities, arts, are being targeted, their governing bodies are being removed, existing heads are being removed, And similarly, so when we come to the question of the Jawaharlal Nehru University and the Hyderabad Central University, which are in the eye of the storm, these are two institutions which are also seen as being among the premier institutions in India and controlled in the eyes of the Hindu nationalists by a largely left liberal caucus. So arises out of this historical legacy and also secondly from the fact that The coming of Hindu nationalism has also meant that there can be no skepticism towards the idea of the nation. There can be no skepticism or criticism of the government in power. Some of the issues that we're facing in South Africa right now and with SABC and its relation to Zuma, for example. So the triggering of the entire controversy happened with the suicide of a young Dalit student called Rohit Vemula in the Hyderabad Central University. And the note, the suicide note that he left behind, which implied that there was a way in which the structures of pedagogy, the structures of administration, the structures of scholarship that had been set into place to facilitate the entry of Dalit students into university, Dalit former untouchable students into institutions of higher learning were being systematically undermined. As also the fact that to be a Dalit student at a university was a profoundly different experience from being a member of any other caste, let alone the upper caste. So when he committed suicide, there were two things that were clear. That one, he was an exceptionally bright student from very straitened circumstances who was doing science, not social science and humanity. So this again implied that there was a kind of probably a shift that was not evident to the larger public, but was actually happening in the universities, because generally students who come from impoverished backgrounds tend to go to the social science and humanities because of a lack of access to forms of education, lack of access to intellectual production from where they came. So Rohit Vemula's suicide actually brought this issue to the forefront, that there was a new generation of students who were doing science, and secondly, that Regardless of whether you're doing science or social science humanities, Dalit students were bearing the brunt of the system. 
So the government immediately tried to cover this up. They took the somewhat mealy-mouthed line that he was not actually a Dalit, that his pa uh, parentage seemed to suggest that he was slightly of a higher caste, still weighed down. So it's like saying somebody is not number 100 in the hierarchy, it's number 98, but that's neither here nor there. So there was an attempt to cover this up, but then the whole issue began to escalate. And it began to escalate also because Hyderabad Central University is in one of the most or underdeveloped regions in India. It's an area that is dominated largely by untouchables, former Dalits and so on. And also that Hyderabad Central University has had a history of the Ambedkar Reading Forum, political activity by untouchables around the figure of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who was a Dalit leader, who was our first law minister, drafter of the constitution and so on. So there was a larger political culture around the Dalit being at the university, which was also a challenge. So there were two things here. One, to suggest that, look, we are all Hindus together. Right? This was a profound challenge to the idea of being Hindus. Because if you have in your midst people who are lesser than you, then you can't aim at an idea of Hindu unity. And this has always been the problem for Hindu fundamentalism in India that the presence of untouchability in the caste system, which divides Hindu society, is always set aside. It's, you know, it's treated as something that one needn't talk about. So this brought an issue. Rohit Vemula's suicide brought this issue of a putative Hindu unity to the head. And it also raised this issue that all was not well in the universities. And this was not a feature only of uh, Hindu nationalist governments, right? That this has been something that's a deep-rooted canker in Indian universities. Now let's take up JNU before I return to Hyderabad Central University or the University of Hyderabad. In JNU, the issues were slightly different. JNU has been, was established as a result of, uh, in the 70s, as a result of an alignment between the Congress and the Communist Party. So it emerged as a left liberal bastion. It has tried to expand the notion of university education because as you know, university education, unlike in South Africa, in India, you pay next to nothing. It's mainly government-funded universities like Hyderabad Central University and JNU, and we can return to this question mm -hmm. later, because that landscape is slowly changing. So in Jawaharlal Nehru University, from the 70s onwards, there has been a systematic taking in of people through a system of points, weightage, and so on, people from uh, the lower class, lower caste, uh, regional background, tribal groups, women, so there's been an attempt to create a larger democratic space and within the university there's always been a culture of free discussion of political parties. So you have the left, you have the right, more so now, earlier it didn't, wasn't very prominent, the Congress, Indian National Congress, the former ruling party, you had groups called the free thinkers, you had multiple and minuscule fractions of the left and so on. So it's a very vibrant culture marked by discussion, never marked by destruction of property. So in the 40 years of its or more, 50 years of its existence, there's never been any destruction of property associated with students' protests because everything is resolved through debate and discussion. So as part of the Hindu nationalist government's targeting of institutions which are seen as left liberal institutions, they were very clear that JNU needed to be targeted and the issue came to the forefront because there's a news agency called Z News which is now presenting the Hindu nationalist government and the Prime Minister in particular as being the hope of the new India and so on. And so they took up two videos of student demonstrations that had happened at JNU and 
they laid the audio from one uh, video onto the audio of another video, thereby suggesting that the existing president of the student union, a young man called Kanhaya Kumar, was actually mouthing anti-India slogans. Now, what anti-India means is something quite may not be uh, understood as that by the rest of India or by a left establishment or by a liberal establishment. Because the two points of dispute is one, whether Kashmir is a part of India. And this is a question that's a deep-rooted question. The, the, the idea at independence was that a referendum would be held for Kashmiris to decide whether they were part of India or not. That referendum has not been held as yet. Kashmir and large parts of the northeast of India are under the Armed Forces Special Powers Act for the last 60 years, carrying on of a colonial inheritance. So there is a, it's not a question of whether I say or you say that Kashmir and the northeast are part of India. Large sections of Kashmiris and northeast, uh, the seven northeastern states of India might feel that they are not part of India or they are part of India only to suffer the coercion of the Indian state. So these two meetings that were held, one meeting was querying the status of Kashmir in the Union and also questioning the capital punishment awarded to a man called Absal Guru who was implicated in the attack on parliament uh, around 10, 11 years ago. And they used the audio of slogans in support of Kashmir and, in sub and against capital punishment, right? not against the death of Absal Guru in particular, against capital punishment. And they put it on to a meeting in which Kanaya Kumar was speaking. So he seemed to be saying these things and therefore he was arrested along with two others. And then the whole thing escalated. But one of the things that happened as a result of this is that JNU has, the Jawaharlal Nehru University has not only produced student radicals, it has produced the Indian establishment. The present foreign secretary of India is from Jawaharlal Nehru University. Most academics are from Jawaharlal University. Most people ironically enter the Jawaharlal Nehru University in order to enter the civil services. So the civil services, which is the elite of India, are staffed by people who may have studied at JNU. So the whole issue got covered up. In, in a way, it was handled so that the issue died down. A lot of people came to the support of Kanaya Kumar. There was international outrage and so on and so forth because JNU had the cultural capital in order to draw upon because some the major professors in universities in Ivy League America have been educated at JNU as well. So they were able to garner an international treasure. This was not true of Hyderabad Central University. They were Dalit students, right? They were located in a Dalit heartland and they were not in the capital city. So the situation at Hyderabad Central University worsened. Police were brought on campus, students were assaulted, and so on and so forth. So two different histories. Two universities built on the same principle, exposed to Hindu fundamentalism, experienced two different histories in the present because of the caste composition. And this is something that is a question that lies at the heart of the cruelty of modern India. While we have affirmative action policies, while untouchability is banned in the Indian constitution and so on, there is a way in which Dalit students have always had difficulty of access to the universities. Two ways in which Dalit students are regarded. One is to see them as people who are not really up to the mark. So professors tend to treat them with contempt, not teach them particularly, not address the issue that they may be in need of remedial education, that English is not the first language of India while it's the language of the university. 
So there is no accounting for the linguistic diversity or the linguistic background as well as the class and caste background of the student. So students face this problem. The other side of this is a bleeding heart liberal position, which is to say, look, we have all of these Dalit students. We need to help them. How do we help them? By giving them marks. So they're not, again, it's the same problem. There is no remedial education, etc. No addressing this issue. So they get inflated marks and they go out of university and suddenly are exposed to, a, again, a landscape in which they are regarded as people who are, well, you know, if you come from that background, we know how you got your marks. Right? So there's a cross that they bear. They're ill-taught or they suffer the condescension of the establishment and the historical scorn that India has towards untouchables. So I think that is something that's at the heart of this controversy, the difference in the perceptions of JNU and Hyderabad Central University. And I just wanted to ask two things. The first is you mentioned a couple of times that the current government is targeting certain universities. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about how that's taking place and why you think that is? Because it seems that there's this clash of two forces. The one is this top-down targeting and the other is a kind of a politics from the student body from below yeah. about yeah. questions of access, questions of yeah. decolonized education, mm -hmm. which I think we'll probably talk about a bit more. Yeah. But can you specifically explain a bit more about what that means to be targeted? You know, is yeah. academic freedom at risk in India? And if so, you know, how is that playing out? Okay, I, mean, uh, I think the question of decolonizing the university is certainly something we need to take up later. But if you think about this targeting, the targeting is happening in very specific ways. One is that, like I mentioned, all these institutions that fund higher learning and disburse government funding, the Hindu nationalist government is putting in its own people. They're seeing this merely as a politics of patronage. It's like cleaning the origin stables of left liberal establishment. So they've picked up institution after institution, former pornographic star, who then went on to uh, create a career for himself by playing uh, in some religious mythological epics, is now the director of the Film and Television Institute, which was once headed by luminaries like Ritwik Ghatak, who was the originator of the New Wave movement, a director comparable to Satyajit Ray, some say better, and so on. So we're thinking about institutions where there is a legacy that since India's dominant intellectual or establishment has been left liberal, there has been no space for the growth of what might be called conservatism of any kind. So you were either part of this or you were out of it. So when the Hindu nationalist establishment seeks to put its own people, they are actually scouring the bottom of the barrel. So the Indian Council for Historical Research, they appointed somebody who believed that they were flying machines invented 5,000 years ago in India, that stray references in the classics indicate that we were advanced in surgery, and so on and so forth. So these are the kinds of people who have now come to head some of our prominent establishments. Similarly, in JNU, what the government has been trying to do is to work through a seam in JNU where there have been people who have been obviously resistant to the left liberal establishment. And here, I mean, when we say left liberal, I mean, I don't, I'm, it's important to point out that while this might be my intellectual stance with regard to most things, it's also important to understand that in societies such as ours, that patronage is crucial, that you basically stuff establishments with people who are like-minded, which actually sucks the oxygen out of discussion. So in one sense, it I would agree with people who say, well, it's 
same difference. It's one patronage versus the other. But the problem with this patronage is that it has very little intellectual wealth to draw upon. So we have a whole host of people who are put into important positions who have nothing to contribute towards the building of institutions. They are there merely to undermine them. So I think that is the problem that we are really looking at here. And JNU too, they were appointed appliant vice-chancellor. In Delhi University, they were appointed appliant vice-chancellor. The present Minister of Education in India, what's called the Human Resources and Development Ministry, is a lady who claimed she had a degree from Yale, and then this was, uh, turned out she had merely been to Yale, I mean, like, travelled through. And uh, she doesn't have a college degree. She's known primarily as a soapy star. So it's not very clear how such a person could lead educational policy, particularly for a country like India, which has the fastest growing economy in the world, and we need to be creating a new generation. So at one level, if I were being completely charitable, I would say that there is a way in which the growth of the left liberal establishment was not through a dialectic. It was through the negation of opposition. So there wasn't an attempt to create a broad church of opinion it was a left liberal opinion that came to be dominant. And so what we see now is also a reaction to that. And it's a violent reaction. I'm hoping that there is a way in which this being a democracy, and India is certainly a very vibrant democracy, that there is a way in which something will emerge out of this mess, out of this confusion. What we are seeing is a moment where an old order is being rearranged, being broken. And what we are seeing is a, the violent damage that that creates. But hopefully there will be, as they say, you know, that, you know, things will even out. At some but point. are those kind of left-leading scholars and intellectuals that you've described, are their positions, their jobs at risk? Are individuals seeing themselves as no yes. longer tenured, no longer able to continue yeah. with their research and their work? Right. Actually, it's not less the question of tenure, because once you get a job in an Indian university, it's a bit like Britain. I mean, then you've got the job till retirement. It's not like the tenure track system in the U.S., so it's not that they fear tenure, it's just that there's been a kind of vitiation of the culture of discussion. So all discussions are being shut down now. So you're violently attacked in the press, sometimes violently attacked in person. There are ways in which the government tries to circumscribe your every activity. So you find this happening to a lot of distinguished academics like Professor Romila Thapa, who is the doyen of historical establishment. Her work is presented in trivialized forms as anti-Indian, anti-Hindu. And there's a very prominent American scholar called Wendy Doniger who trained a whole generation of Sanskritists and her work is seen as being disrespectful of Indian culture. There are lobbies emerging in the United States among Indian diaspora who are drawing upon many of the ways in which Zionists in America are trying to boost the idea of the state of Israel as being the only entity that should exist in West Asia. So there's a way in which funding, there's a systematic intellectual program that's been created among the diaspora in consort with the Indian government to suggest that only Indians should be, or a certain kind of Indian, i.e. a Hindu, should be teaching Indian civilization. So recently at the University of California, Irvine, there was the offer of a huge amount of money to set up a chair on condition that it would be a Hindu who would occupy the post of Sanskrit. And the University of California, Irvine, the academics rallied, rightly so, and they said, we don't want the money. There are ways in which they are trying to portray Hinduism like the kind of reaction that you see among religions of the book. Because Hinduism is largely a philosophy. It's very different. I mean, we say Hinduism, we imply 
a certain unity to it. But that's what the current government and the Hindu nationalist government wants, that there is only one Hinduism, there's one India, and there are no other views which will be tolerated. And is this linked to the rise of the neoliberal university in India, in your view, or is there a longer history to that? Because I think that's something universities around the world are struggling with, is the kind of neoliberalization of the institutions. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about how that process has worked in India. And I find it particularly interesting because you said universities do not charge fees. So Mm -hmm. there's something very inspiring about that, I think, especially for any South Africans listening. See, there are ways in which I think uh, the idea that if you're an academic, a tenured academic, that you have tenure till you retire, that every 10 years is a pay commission that's appointed that increases your salary, that you retire with full pension. All of these are seen as now increasingly beginning to be seen as drains on the state's economy, particularly since the Hindu nationalist government feels that, look, uh, these are the wrong kind of people to be fostering anyway. Who are these people who are constantly critical of the idea of the nation, who are constantly critical of India's economic progress, and so on and so forth, who are being provided with jobs like this, and similarly with students as well. So one of the questions that was raised consistently with Kanhaiya Kumar, the president of the Students' Union, was this guy is getting a free education. He's 28 years old. He's not gainfully employed. He's doing something called a PhD. And we are paying for all of this. The taxpayer is paying for all of this. And all he does is mouth anti-national sentiments. So there's this kind of anti-intellectualism which is associated with the neoliberal university where you have a kind of managerial perspective that universities are about producing people who will serve the country in various capacities. So it's a bit like a higher bantu system of education, right? So you create professionals, engineers, doctors, IT guys, and the social science and humanities are devalued as just being pools, cesspools of dissent and people getting paid public money in order to create critiques of the very people biting the hand that feeds them. So this landscape, which is actually challenging this idea not of free education, but saying that if we are providing free education, it should be towards producing useful and productive kinds of citizens. And in Andhra Pradesh, this process began much earlier when we had the growth of IT in the 90s, where history was systematically removed from the syllabi in colleges. So when I was teaching at Hyderabad Central University, it was happening before my very eyes that suddenly the catchment area where we could draw upon for university MA in history was drying up. So that's one facet of it. The second facet of it is the fact that there's a lot of capital that's now being put into private universities and where the fees are very high. And it is coming at the end of a kind of secession of the middle classes, right? And you find that happening in South Africa as well. The middle classes are seceding from public schools, they're seceding from public health, they're seceding from public transport. And in India, obviously, 60 years since independence, this has been happening. And now there's a seceding from the public-funded university towards private universities, which is a matter of class, which is a matter of perception that The public universities are educating the poor, the untouchable, the lower caste, alongside the upper caste. The idea of merit, merit is not being sufficiently attended to. True merit can exist only in a private university. A whole set of questions which are the Indian inflection on the idea of neoliberalism, right? Because we are fundamentally a hierarchical caste society. And this is going to color everything that happens. So this is the way in which I think neoliberalism is being 
configured into nationalism and into a caste society, into Hindu nationalism and a caste society. Does the Indian government fund those public universities sufficiently? Oh, they're extremely well funded, you see, because when I decided to uh, resign from my job at Delhi University, most friends were saying this is an extremely foolish thing for me to do because unlike here or in a lot of universities all over the world where the salaries are linked to performance, here what happens is that since we are under the Human Resources and Development Ministry and since we are government servants, which is I think is probably similar to France, the entire process of the advancement within the government sector is led by the bureaucracy. So you have half a million people writing for a thousand jobs each year. So that's a rate of attrition to get into the civil services. The civil services thinks they're the elect, they're God's chosen. They feel a cringe factor towards the corporate sector. So there's always this kind of trying to raise the salaries of the senior bureaucrats to keep pace with inflation. So every year there's allowances made in your salary for for inflation. There's also every 10 years a pay commission that's appointed. So this year, the pay commission will probably bring up everybody's salaries by between 20 and 25%. And this process is led at the top and then trickles down to all the lesser bureaucrats like the academics. So in that sense, there's a substantial funding, not only in terms of research, but in terms of salaries and so on that the government does. Apart from the fact that if you come from the bottom segments of society, you can get basically a free education. Anyone can go to university. And you can see the fact that when we say India is the largest growing economy in the world, we see where India is right now, 60 years down the line. It's a result of this investment in education. So there's some lessons that South Africa could potentially learn from that model. Absolutely. In in any country, right? any country in the global south, that we have human capital. And if we don't invest in education, we'll see the consequences of it. Absolutely. So perhaps we can go back now to the question of access and decolonization of education in India. I think there's some interesting points you've already raised about the accessibility of university Mm -hmm. in India. And that kind of universal accessibility looks and sounds very good on paper, but as we saw with the events at Hyderabad Central University in particular, there are still huge Mm -hmm. problems or challenges for those who come from what we would call previously disadvantaged backgrounds, right? So what are your views on how the university system is dealing with those questions of access and equality within the system? Actually, the various levels at which one can talk about this, as we said, in terms of access, everybody can go to university. But not everybody is educated equally within the university. So students who come from uh, private schools and students who come with a knowledge of English obviously do better. A lot of them then go on to do the graduate record examination, get scholarships, go to England, America, and so on and so forth. But let's talk about the average student. The average student struggles. The average student struggles because they are largely educated in their mother tongue or in a regional language. Classes at The central universities are in English. There are any number of regional universities where you can gain an education in the language of the region. But obviously, these are lower down in the pecking order. Because if you have a degree from a regional university, the kinds of jobs that you get are also governed by the fact that there's a general preference for English in India. So if you take the central universities, one of the tragedies of India really has been that while we have managed to evolve a language policy so that most Indians are quadrilingual. They know English, they know Hindi, the national language, they have their mother tongue and they know the language of the region that they 
live in. There's a way in which Indians feel at home in India, wherever they go, to, to a large extent. I mean, this is romanticizing a bit, but just to give you an indication of the language part. But when it comes to knowledge, it's very clear that while we may have been clerks under colonialism, where English was taught so as to provide staffing for the colonial establishment, right now, a lot of the educational system that we have in the universities is about actually providing people who will replicate a knowledge that already exists in the Euro-American space. So we have people who go through a free education here, get a kind of a shadow of a Euro-American syllabus. So they, they might do contemporary European philosophy or they study history where it'll be there are large chunks of Europe, America, which are there in the syllabus and so on, and they're taught in English. But there isn't any attempt to address the question as to what is the knowledge that we produce in our spaces, what are our conceptual categories, how do we engage with Indian philosophy, or if it is only a tradition of a thousand years or more. Those kinds of questions, we lack the self-confidence and we lack the wherewithal to actually engage with that entire intellectual inheritance that we have. No Indian university actually addresses this. So we come across as pale shadows of Euro-American universities, and which is why when you think about how well Indian academics perform abroad, is that they already have a kind of training at a basic level in the Euro-American episteme. So when they go to Europe or America, they kind of hit the ground running as it were. So that lack of self-confidence is something that paradoxically is being addressed by the Hindu nationalist government. They're saying, look, what do we do with Sanskrit? What do we do with all of this? But then... There have been no systems in place which have created a connection between our intellectual traditions and something called modern knowledge. So if you did Indian philosophy, a separate subject in itself, you would study Indian philosophy, but that's seen as something that's a matter of the past. Mm. It isn't the way in which a contemporary European philosopher sits down and can summon up everyone from Socrates to Heidegger as their contemporaries. One doesn't find it odd that on the same page you might find the inhabitation of philosophers and thinkers across multiple generations. There is a fictive genealogy, call it what you will, where there is a notion of the contemporary. In India, we lack that notion. And that has been the failure of our universities. When it comes to science and technology, certainly there is a, a larger secular. Mathematics everywhere is the same and so on and so forth. So there... It's our engineering institutions, our medical institutions, our astrophysics, our space program are up there with the best in the world. I mean, India, as you know, sent a low-cost craft to Mars, right? And it did successfully what any NASA craft could have done. So it's in the social science and humanities, I think there is a crisis. And when we address this crisis of the university, when we address the question of caste, when we address a neoliberal university and so on, that's what we are talking about. Because the other problem would be that if you think about the institutes of technology, they're all doing very well. They're largely funded by the government, but most of our students, around 30 to 40 percent, go abroad. So we're providing a subsidized education for people who leave. So this question of a decolonized consciousness, the question of the colonial inheritance, the question of how to decolonize the university is a question that's largely about the social science and humanities, as we know. And in India, we've not even begun to think about it. So in South Africa, when we talk about decolonizing the university, I think it's the same kind of resistance, where people are saying, look, we don't need to engage with African language. There's still historians of Africa who don't know an African language. And you, this would be palpably absurd. Mm -hmm. 
There are people who teach African literature, who teach it in translation. Right? I mean, it, if someone were to want to work on truth and didn't know French, it would be seen as an act of temerity, if not foolishness. Right? So I think those kinds of questions unite our countries, but South Africa, in that sense, has the possibility of taking another path because these debates are happening now. There is already an inheritance of loss, as it were, that they can work with and which they can build upon. What else do you think South African students and academics can learn from colleagues in India in terms of, you know, India is the world's largest democracy. It's had 40 more years of independence than we've had. And we're going through some very tumultuous times in terms of demands for access, for free education. And also in terms of the, the kind of relationship we're forging with government and how government gets involved or doesn't in our universities. What kinds of things do you think South African academics and students should be looking out for and trying to learn from, from our Indian colleagues? I mean, I don't know whether they, to put it in that binary, one would lapse into a certain kind of condescension or even a false problematic. Because it's less the question of what South Africa can learn from India or even the other way around. There are certain historical lessons which are spread across the global south. So if you were to move across to places even like the Philippines or Latin America, I think there is this question of one. The fundamental question is of access to universities. And I think in South Africa, it's deeply undemocratic. It's highly expensive. Probably less than 5% can comfortably afford uh, pay for a university education. This was a statistic that came up last year in a, when the fees must fall uh, issue came up. So this question of access, undemocratic. Secondly, and this is a question that's linked to this, that we still work within a landscape of learning that is in some sense an apartheid landscape in South Africa where books are not available. Publishers are few, books are in, extremely expensive. It's not very clear why this is so. It can't be that there are no readers because that's a chicken and egg question. If there were sufficient number of books at lower prices, more and more people would begin to read. And there's something that the government is doing wrong here, right? that there must be free access to knowledge, where knowledge becomes something that is not available only in the university, but it is available in a public sphere. So if I were to think back about the experience, not of India, but of my state, Kerala in particular, which had the first ever communist, elected communist government in the world in 1957, that was preceded by a whole degree of mobilization which attacked questions of inequality, hierarchy, caste inequality, access to education, and so on and so forth. But fundamental to that was also the fact that allowing people not, so not only creating high rates of literacy, so Kerala has the highest rates of literacy in India, but connected with that is the fact that books are available for the price of a hamburger. So more and more and more people are reading. There is a lot of work available in translation. So if we wanted to read Foucault, we could read it in Malayalam rather than in English. That's the second aspect of it. And this is where I think this one state has managed to do what, if one were to think about exemplars, I wouldn't be looking at India, I'd be looking at countries like China and Japan, which were not colonized in the full sense that India or indeed South Africa were, where they have, they learn everything that they do in Chinese or Japanese. They write papers, academic papers in Chinese or Japanese. Anyone who wants to have access to them translates. They get Nobel Prize for work done and written in Chinese and Japanese and so on and so forth. Now, that's an exemplar that we could think about. 
And if one were to think about the historical experience of Japan, one of the things that they did, which India didn't do, which South Africa could do, is to create over, since the Meiji Restoration in 1868, students who went up to university, they were required as part of their social science and humanities course to translate a major text, a paper, a chapter into Japanese. So now when you think about 100 years down the line, 150 years down the line, Hegel is available in Japanese. You know, Heidegger is available in Japanese. All theory is available in Japanese. And it's a painful struggle. They've had to struggle to produce a vocabulary. A lot of the arguments here are half-baked arguments where they say languages are inadequate to theorize. That languages have been about experience, languages cannot be about theory. So Zulu addresses the question of culture, it cannot address the question of intellectual tradition. And that's where we need to make a leap, a leap of imagination, a leap of faith in the future, where we say that, look, it should be possible for students who are coming with these linguistic skills not to tell them that, look, English is the language of the university. Right? Set aside Zulu, Sutu, Pedi, yeah, they're not really needed here, but to say, look, what do you bring to the university? You bring a sense of tradition, you bring certain linguistic skills. How can we use that to create a corpus that allows people to engage with the language not merely as something cultural, but as something that is intellectual, as capable of intellectual production? So in that sense, it's less a question of what we can learn, what South Africa can learn from India, but what South Africa and India can learn from a larger history of access and of a temerity in producing intellectual knowledge. There is a certain degree of cowardice and a cringe that both South Africa and India have in relation to something called the Euro-American establishment. As you can see in the passage of several substandard academics from European spaces through its, the very fact that they come from Europe or America seems to grant them some distinction. It's not very clear that their work is relevant, that they possess sufficient intellectual distinction. And we refuse to look across into Africa, into Asia, into the Caribbean, into Latin America, all of whom, uh, particularly in Latin America and Caribbean, we have had major thinkers emerge from theorizing about their historical experience and saying, look, we are not Europe. We would like to be in Europe. That's a project students have to be yes. intricately involved in. We can't yes. deliver it for them. They have to, like you said, help to translate texts, help to produce right. new theories with to, us. And we have to have a new idea of the student. The student not merely as the object of pedagogy, but as somebody who is a repository whom we need to tap. And I think this is a problem in India. Indian universities are hierarchical, South African universities are equally so. So you have to conceptualize the university differently. Mm, absolutely. It's been a really interesting discussion. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of bring up or share about the Indian university experience? Actually, not really, except in the sense that here, there's probably, this is one instance in which India can learn from the South African experience in the sense that in South Africa, universities are largely private. And we are facing the consequences of that right now, that large swathes of people are not prepared for the knowledge economy of the present. If India proceeds to move towards more and more of the private universities, we shall find more and more people excluded from the system. And we shall see the results of the secession, where in India, people no longer send their children to government schools. It's the, so the poor, there's poor teaching, there's poor access, and what will happen to our major public funded universities will be similar, that they will become second rate institutions. 
in South Africa too, I can see that beginning to happen with the kids who are at school here. My children go to government school here. That would be unthinkable. So when I go to India and I tell people, they think, you know, you're earning all this money. Why, you know, why can't you send your children? Let Give your children a better education. Mm. But here, South Africa is still in that transition. And I think that's where there's this... How should I put it? There are these different temporalities, there are different way, uh, different times in which India and South Africa live, and that is something there. Where that is that point. The different temporalities is the juncture at which we have a lot to learn from each other, mm. rather than from the much larger space of the global South. Because you've seen uh, in places like. Uh, I, mean, I, went, I went to Mauritius and in Mauritius I had the taxi driver told me that his brother was an associate professor at the university because everyone has free schooling mm. and free university and that was an obvious example of what a free access to you know, education mm. does mm. and this is true in India as well right? no one stays within the class that they were in their parents generation except perhaps for the absolutely poor and large sections among the Dalits, but there there may be a coincidence of caste and class. Otherwise, the mobility is very rapid. No one wants to be experiencing what their parents and grandparents did, and that mobility is evident in classrooms. In the 20 years that I taught, the classrooms are very different. Mm. South Africa, I'm not sure that is so. Well, I think there's that same desire for social mobility, that urgent, yes, pressing but... need for a better life for oneself and one's family, but like you said, the problem here is that our public institutions are yeah. run as though they're private. Yeah. And so we're getting this like two-tier mm -hmm. education system, yeah. which is um, quite a terrifying prospect. Indeed it is. And that will be the basis for the extreme reflections on social revolution. Right? I mean, there is this fear that all of this will go up in smoke and you know the excessive fear that people have in South Africa of a phenomenon such as the EFF you know, which I think is fueled as much by a certain panic that lies in an understanding that South Africa remains untransformed right where it's like the resisting what is in the EFF that actually speaks to what people understand as being so right it's not only the EFF expressing it but they don't want to agree with the fact that this represents uh, not that everything about the EFF is good or not that their rhetoric is something that actually helps to move the country forward. One can make, make any number of arguments against it. Mm -hmm. But it's the fact that what they are saying sinks with what so much of the population thinks that they resist it. Mm -hmm. right? And that is the phenomenon that in India we have acknowledge uh, you know trying to uh, grapple with in a completely different way where we now have to come to terms with the fact of the failure of the left liberal establishment mm. what did it not address what were the perversions that the left liberal establishment introduced why did the whole system of knowledge production become one of patronage mm. and so on and so forth uh, and that's why the left liberal establishment of people on, who are left liberal so bitterly oppose the Hindu right wing government as well at one level. In the many reasons for opposing which are fund fundamentally correct, but at one level they oppose it because they know that they are complicit. Right? And it's that complicity that we have to fear. That in South Africa and here. But the elites are complicit in non-transformation. Absolutely. I mean, that's ex precisely what the students made us come face to face with yeah. in exactly. October last year. Yes. I mean, the question is, how are we going to respond? Mm.
It's been a really fascinating conversation, and I for one have learned a lot about what colleagues and students in India are experiencing at the moment. It seems that both our university sectors are under increasing pressure, albeit from slightly different directions. Let's hope that university communities across the global south can forge new forms of exchange and solidarity in service of progress and social justice. We intend for today's episode to be one of many that looks at international comparisons and thinks about higher education from different national and cultural perspectives. If you have any suggestions about topics or guests for future shows, please be in touch at our email address, theacademiccitizen at gmail.com. Okay, my name is Dino Onono and I'm doing my third year in my BSc Biological Science degree. And I've been part of some of the protests, especially the Fees Must Fall that happened last year. I don't even know like other varsities um, have such problems. Like in, I'm, it's being ignorant and I'm not supposed to be ignorant, but I, I don't know them. Very sad that a life had to be lost, firstly. That means there needs to be change. And they, we have to stop, uh, whether it's the government or whoever's responsible, it's the government, the people ourselves, there needs to be change and not saying there will be change or these are the plans, they need to be implemented, they need to be seen and they need to be visible and they need to actually happen so that change can occur and people can access education. I'm Odwa Abraham, I'm in third year, Bachelor of Laws postgraduate. I've not heard of the protest, I won't lie. I've not heard of it at, at all. I have not heard and I'm surprised if there is actually even a protest. Media gatekeeping, that's what I call it. Uh, because if you look at, especially Western media, what they deem is correct and what they deem that the world should know about it. If something happens in the West, of course we are going to know about it. But if it happens where there's digital divide, which India, I'm sure they're experiencing that. And most African states, we're not going to... For example, who knew that there's floods in, 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 in Ghana? No one knew. But if it was happening somewhere else, the whole world was going to cry. If the West sniffs, we all catch the flu. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Mbenyane. Thanks to Professor Dilip Menon, Ndogozo, Odwa and Dineo for their time, as well as David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.